Welcome to the 5-7 Podcast. I'm your host, Pre, and today I've got Dan Pronk with me on the show. Dan, how you doing, man? Yeah, good, Pre. Thanks for having me, mate. Excellent, man. Thanks. We really appreciate you on the show. Dan wrote a book called Average 70 Kilogram Dickhead, uh, which is fantastic. And it's, it's, uh, I'm going to leave, I'm going to leave the, um, how the, how you got the title for the book, uh, inside the book. So the the readers can read that on their own. But what we're going to do today is we're going to do a book review uh, of his book. And, uh, and it's awesome. We're going to read a few passages and he's going to give a little insight onto uh, where he was at the time. So, um, yeah, man, we're going to leave out the, uh, <laughs> we'll leave out the title, man. Cause I thought that that part was really, really funny. <laughs> No, I appreciate that, and and I mean the the as as you know, it's a story behind the titles in the first chapter there. But the the gist of it, it was obviously meant to be a little bit attention grabbing and a bit tongue tongue in cheek. But the <laughs> the gist of it is just uh, the whole ethos of the book is about how you know average people. I hate the term average, but I mean you know the the what society deems as an average person can achieve you know exceptional things, and for the most part, these people that we see. Uh, particularly on social media, are, are just average people that are doing these exceptional things because they've they've persisted and they've stuck with it. And so that was the whole ethos of the book is just about how, well, myself as an average seventy kilo dickhead has managed <laughs> to to do a couple of above average things. And so that's basically the the gist of the book, just breaking that down. Hey Dan, could you give uh, a quick introduction of yourself, please? Yeah, for sure. So, I uh, I started off as as just you know middle middle class sort of a kid, chubby kid at school. wasn't particularly good at anything. One older brother and uh, normal Australian, uh, if you hadn't picked up already, uh, Australian sort of upbringing. Uh, my my dad was an army helicopter pilot. Mum was a, a speech therapist, and so just sort of cruised through school. Average grades, never particularly good at sport. Did okay at things here and there, and then. When I got out of school, I got a bit of an interest in triathlon. Towards the end of my high school, I'd become quite keen on middle distance running, and and uh, and then that led to triathlon. And so, for my first few years out out of school, I, I tried to crack it as a professional triathlete. Didn't make it there. Had done a bit of university. I did an exercise science degree. Didn't really want to work in that. And so, basically, was at a crossroads in my early twenties where I needed to find a career more or less and so I ended up looking at the army my brother had gone into the army and so that was familiar to me my dad was army uh, and I was looking at, at future study as well to kind of use my exercise science as a bit of a launch pad to study something else and the two of those things came together I ended up getting an army scholarship to go and study medicine and so became a uh, doctor with the army and then as that was all going on, my brother had gone into special forces. He joined a uh, unit in the Australian Army called the Special Air Service Regiment. And so I had a look at that and decided that's what I wanted to do. And, and so dedicated a, a big chunk of my life to training towards the s- selection process for the SAS and managed to get through that course in 2008 and then spent the, the five years after that serving with Australian Special Operations and doing a, a number of uh, tours including a, a handful to Afghanistan and getting some good experience there. Uh, so that, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. I'm, I'm at the other end of my military career now and have gone back to a civilian doctor role and just slowly but surely reintegrating back into the civilian world. Awesome, man. So the 
the first, well, you know, the, the chapters aren't even numbered. They're, they're just named, which is great. So the, um, and, and each title has a, um, kind of has a bit of a narrative to the, to the chapter, uh, I think, which works really, really well with the read. And uh, so this one is called, It Is Not the Critic Who Counts. Failure to see the truth behind this opening line, it is not the critic that counts, is at the core of why many of us in this life never hit our goals, and why some of us never even set goals in the first instance. It is human nature to be influenced by what others think of us, especially those close to us, and sadly it is also human nature for a lot of people to want to drag down the tall poppies among us. I guess this tendency stems from an inherent insecurity that many have that is worsened by watching others rise above the level of performance that they are at. These people don't have the aptitude or drive to strive towards a goal themselves, so to retain their own sense of self-worth, it is crucial for them to do their best to dissuade others from pursuing self-improvement that will lead them to betterment. That way, everyone stays in their shitty level and they can feel equal and not inferior. The way that these people achieve this objective is through criticism of your goals and aspirations. And, you know, this is... That is, you know, absolutely huge because I think that there is a ton of people out there that are, you know, they're trying to make it and they're they're trying to, you know, make a difference in their lives. And and I think that there's a point in everybody's life where, you know, you need to kind of take that shot, you know, you need to kind of, for lack of a better, better term, jump. And and people don't, I mean, either they do or, or, or they don't. And, you know, yeah, there is a chance that you won't be successful and there's a chance that there's a chance that you will be successful. What do you think it is like inherently that makes people want to put others down? Well, I think ultimately we, I guess we're also comfortable in the first world in, in this day and age. We don't have to force ourselves out of our comfort zone necessarily if we don't choose to. And I, I think many people are, uh, are completely at peace with that. They cruise along. They might they they might think that they want to strive for something. They might try towards a goal for a short period of time. And then when they really hit that grind and it gets hard, they just, just give up and go back to their comfortable existence. And I, I, I think... You know, there's certainly people out there that, and I think most of us have the ideas in our head periodically, oh, geez, I'd love to do that, or I'd love to do this, I'd love to run a marathon or go and study a master's of something or other. And, and But formulating that idea and then actually putting it into practice are two different things. And I, I think that, and it's all about the persistence and determination, and sadly, I, I feel that, the, that there's a, a bunch of people out there who are oftentimes keen to uh, sort of try and cut those people down, and, and you see that. And, I mean, that title, It's Not a Critic That Counts, comes from that famous speech, uh, The Man in the Arena by Theodore Roosevelt. And if you haven't seen, uh, you haven't heard that one, it's worth looking up. So The Man in the Arena by Roosevelt, and that's the first line is, it's it's not the critic who counts, and then it goes on. It's a very motivational passage, and I, I think it's a great one. It certainly fired me up over the years, but... But I, I do fear, and, and I've experienced it myself, unfortunately, in times when I've I've set a, a ambitious goal. And I, I think some of it, particularly the stuff, the, the criticism that comes from loved ones and people close to you is well-intentioned. And I suspect it comes from these people who do actually care about you. They can see you setting a goal that, that they feel may not be achievable or the chance of achieving it is, is uh, remote. And so they're oftentimes I think trying to protect you from uh, the disappointment or the all the investment you put in to not hit that goal. So so it may be that the, the criticism you get from loved ones is sometimes well-intentioned. However, uh, oftentimes I think 
it's it's unfortunately the people that don't want to see someone else excel because it will be highlighting the fact that they don't have the drive or persistence to strive for any goal themselves and so they feel the need to, to cut you down and I've certainly experienced that over the years and and it can be very influential on your your own kind of determination it can really if you take it on board and and uh, really get bogged down in it it can it can knock the motivation right out of your dreams and so i guess it's important to and imperative to just sort of you know listen to that criticism try and ignore the stuff that's not worthwhile if there's some little bits and pieces in there that might actually be worth considering and taking on board particularly from people who are close to you and will be affected by your pursuit of a goal then absolutely do that but but more and more, I, I sort of feel that it's the, you know, it's, and, and as Roosevelt says in his speech, it's not the critic that counts and, and it's really not. It's the, as, as he also says, it's the bloke in the arena. So, you know, try and uh, try and put up a bit of armour against that criticism and just crack on and pursue your goals. And, and like you said before, I mean, the, ultimately it can, worst case is you don't hit what you're, what you're moving towards and that can be a bit embarrassing. You get that feeling of failure and that you'll get the I told you so's from the critics. But I think a worse outcome is to uh, miss an opportunity to try and then reflect later in your life and think, geez, I wonder if I could have done this, wonder if I could have done that, wonder if I could have joined that special unit or ran a marathon or got a uni degree or what have you, and, and the window's closed. So I think that's a worse outcome. In um, in David Goggin's book, he has something called The Accountability Mirror, and I'm not sure if you've, you've uh, read his book or not. Yeah, but, uh, I have, yeah. I, I do um, – I have like a somewhat like a, a similar term as well. I, I just say it, you know, looking at, looking in the mirror. You know, you, there's comes a point in time when you know you got to look in the mirror and you got to look at yourself and either you like what you see or you don't like what you see. And I think when people are trying to to you know take that next step, it forces the people around them to to look in the mirror and they don't like what they see. You know, so they kind of tell them, you know, it's it's a bad idea. You know what you're doing. <laughs> In a way, yeah, I think you're right, and I think you've got a couple of good points there. I mean, one one is that accountability, and at the end of the day, you are only truly accountable to yourself, and so that's that's one part of it. But also, as you rightly point out, when someone close to you or in your social circle starts to strive towards something ambitious, it does make you have a look at yourself and think, "Geez, what am I doing with my life?" And and say, "Yeah, I, I, geez, that that Goggins book." I mean that is a real in your face uh, <laughs> book, isn't it? It's it's yeah. Uh, it's sort of it's not a feel good book, that's for sure. But no, what it's an not. Incredible, <laughs> what an incredible individual and hugely motivating. Yeah, yeah. brilliantly. Yeah, you know, I also find that a lot of people, like a lot of military people, love it, and and they can you know they can understand you know where he's coming from, and there's people like kind of on the outside of the military. They read it and then they really dig it. You know, like they want to like. Um, you know, it, it it motivates them, and then there's other people that are like, "Yeah, I like it," but you know, that guy's crazy. He's he's hardcore, and and if you really look at it, you know, c- considered what he went through in his life, you could really understand, you know, why he's so driven, you know, and why he can't be, uh, you know, quote unquote average, you know, which I don't think that it's, I don't think that it's necessarily a bad thing to be average. I mean, if you want to be average, yeah, sure, that's cool, but just as long as you're not carrying down the people around you, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely spot on. And that's a, a point that I hope I convey clearly in the book is is I'm not having a go at people that are comfortable in a in a 
average life and i hate the term average it's, it sounds so derogatory however the the people that are very comfortable to to go about their nine to five job to have their two kids and two cars and a, a mortgage and, and what have you that's i mean that's great if if you're comfortable with that and that's your if you're truly at peace with that then that's brilliant however it's the ones that are in that sort of situation and, and living what we perceive as an average life in the in the first world and then feel the need to put their uh, opinion forward for others who are striving for a little bit more than that the people like the goggins of the world that are driven to really excel and and feel that need so yeah if you if you if you're happy with what you've got that's the gold standard but if you're not then either do something about it or don't pass opinion on those <laughs> that, are, that are trying to rise a little bit above their current sort of spot right all right on with the book I dedicated the next six years of my life towards bettering myself with the objective of completing the grueling SASR selection course. I completed my medical schooling, all the while pack marching hundreds of kilometers, month in, month out. I studied languages. I scuba dived. I rock climbed. I shot handguns and rifles, anything to improve myself in areas that I felt might improve my chances of being suitable for special forces service. All the while, I stayed quiet about my aspirations, and aside from a few key people in my life who I knew would support me, I didn't tell a soul. Fast forward to 2007, and I had graduated from medical school, completed my compulsory medical internship, and a further year of civilian hospital experience, and I was a few months into my posting to my first Army unit. Despite having technically been in the Army for six years by that stage, all of that time, I had been spent in civilian schooling and hospitals. So in effect, I was only several months into proper military service. The first year in uniform was spent doing a series of basic introduction courses to learn how to behave as an Army officer, as well as apply my medical skill set to the Army environment. For all intents and purposes, I was a newbie, wet behind the ears. That was context, which, which I attended at my interview with my Army career advisor that year. Now, before we go on, I feel it's important to see this interaction from his perspective. From his side of the table, he would have seen me as a brand new baby army doctor who was 30 seconds into his job and was yet to even complete the course courses required to become employable in a full capacity in the role, let alone deployable. He didn't know me from a bar of soap and certainly would have had no idea that I had spent the previous six years sharpening myself physically and mentally for special forces selection. Back to my side of the table. As I entered my interview, my, my initial impression of my career advisor was unimpressive. He was overweight, slumped in his chair, wearing his dress, dress uniform poorly, and didn't rise from his, from his seat to greet me. When I entered, he was, however, the person who could have a significant impact on my career. So I looked past my initial impression and pressed on with the start of the interview, trying to put my best foot forward. When asked what my intentions were for my career, I confidently informed him of my plan to do SASR selection and pursue a career with Special Forces. He had been eating his lunch while completing my interview, and it was at this point with a mouthful of food that he looked up at me in amused disbelief as to what he was hearing and began to draw a deep breath to laugh in my face. In doing so, he deeply inhaled the food particle from his mouth, which sent him into an explosive coughing fit that caused him to turn red and then purple before finally clearing his airways enough to allow him to laugh directly in, into my face. He proceeded to crap all over my aspirations and let me know that I was sacrificing my opportunity to build a real career by chasing a pipe dream. I had never felt so humiliated in my life. I felt my face redden and my blood pressure rise. 
the blood vessels in my temple started to throb, and I actually felt tears well in my eyes. It was a horrible experience. Now, I picked this, I picked this out because there are times in, in everybody's life where they feel that they have been completely you know, humiliated and, you know, they, they, they're trying to do something and, you know, something happens where they're completely humiliated and they, and they get to that edge on, you know what, this was a really bad idea. I can't believe that I did this, you know, and either they turn back or, you know, that they keep on going at this point, you know, in, in your life, what made you want to keep going? I think the and, and you're spot on. I mean, that was a real uh, tipping point of sorts for me, and and I was by that stage so invested in my goal that there was there was nothing that was going to stop me attempting that course. You know, well, I guess ultimately, if the army hadn't let me on it or something like like that, but I was uh, absolutely hell bent on having a go at SAS selection, and that was. By that point, I mean that was 2007, and I'd been become aware of the the unit in 2001 when uh, I went over to visit my brother just before his first deployment to Afghanistan. So that was at the end of 01, uh, not long after the September 11, and I, I saw what went on at the unit. It opened my eyes to to everything special forces that I'd previously had no real concept of at all, uh, to be honest. And and then, so I, I used that opportunity while I was finishing up my medical schooling and my junior doctor time to train towards it, basically, to do anything that I could that I thought would improve my chances of getting into special forces. And so by the time I had that career interview, and and as I try and convey in the in the passage that you just read, I mean I'm I'm turning up to this career interview and the career advisory seeing me as as brand new army doctor, which is what I was, and I guess he would have heard a million times before people sitting in front of him saying I want to be special forces. And the reality is, the attrition rate on the any selection course is is significant. It's uh, it it is more likely that you're going to fail and and the people that are generally successful uh come from a infantry a soldiering background they've got some soldiering skills and here i was as a, a doctor that had just finished my civilian medical qualification couple of junior years in hospitals and then i was only six months into a uh, unit at a, a health support battalion doing my induction courses and here I am telling him that I want to want to do SAS selection so I can certainly see it from his perspective and and his response was probably pretty pretty much the appropriate one however at that stage I guess I was probably looking for some validation from him uh, which I, I with hindsight I was probably never going to get because what I was proposing wasn't from his perspective a great idea and the chance of success was probably pretty slim but also, by that same token, he, he wouldn't have had the concept that I had been doing so much training and was so invested in that goal. So fortunately, I was psychologically uh, so determined to to hit that goal that what ended up happening after that interaction with the career advisor where he, he was sort of adamant that this wasn't going to be successful, uh, that it actually strengthened my resolve. So I got out of that and then sort of after I settled down a little bit, thought, well, you know, I'm going to use that as rocket fuel and I am going to train my ass off towards this to to prove this guy wrong. And so, you know, I, I guess it, it was a bit spiteful, but it, it, it really supercharged my motivation. But if I hadn't have been as invested in the goal as I was, uh, that response from a person in that position in the construct could have quite easily have made me just you know quit 
quit on my goals. And I, I think a lot of people, exactly as you, you mentioned, Pre, they will hit a, a crucial point where they've got a goal and they've been maybe keeping it to themselves, working towards it, and then they go to someone who they want external validation from and they get that negative, no, nah, that's a terrible idea, you'll never be able to do it. And, and so they, they, they might be inclined to walk away from it. So I guess if you have any any ambitious goals you will hit these points and if they're people that are peripheral to it and they don't matter that goes back to what we were talking about before they're the critics that that just don't count and can be ignored but if it's coming from someone who actually is important a loved one you know a a boyfriend girlfriend wife husband family member or in this instance a, a career advisor who's the bloke who's ultimately needed to to put my name down for stuff uh, to influence my military career, then that's that's a real tough one. So, you know, when they cr- start criticising you, that can have a real impact and it can go either way. It can either make you walk away from your goal or uh, strengthen your resolve. And fortunately for me, I was invested enough that that just uh, was rocket fuel for my motivation and I, I used that every time I was struggling when I was training, getting up at 3 a.m. to go pack marching in the pouring rain. I'd be thinking of that bloke and just think, well, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get up and I'm going to do this and I'm, I'm going to prove you wrong. How old were you at that point? Uh, I was 30. Okay. Okay, so then you were pretty comfortable with, with, with who you were pretty much as a guy then. Yeah, look, I think that's another factor. I mean, I came into the Army, so I'd, by the time I'd done my triathlon thing, I did that for about five years when I got out of school and, and did my – first degree part-time so I was I think I was about 23 24 before I even entered into the army and then I had that period where I was doing my medical school and then my junior doctor years so yeah you, you're quite right I wasn't an 18 19 year old kid I was a, a um, you know a, a, a young man with a bit of life experience working in hospitals as a junior doctor and so I guess that also helped me to just put perspective on it and just look at this bloke and be able to rationalize what he was saying, be able to see it from his perspective and then make a decision. Hey, I, I hear what you're saying. I, I take your doubt on board and now I'm going to prove you wrong. <laughs> Moving on the flight and the dog. I was on the officer component of my special forces selection course and I found myself right back there in the pit of self doubt. I was completely, completely out of my comfort zone being an inexperienced army doctor lined up against dozens of experienced army infantry officers, many of whom had multiple operational tours of Iraq and some with experience commanding troops in battle. One of the activities that we were required to do was called rate your mate. And it involved the 30 or so officers left of the course by that stage, organizing ourselves into what we decided was an order of best to worst candidate. As you can imagine, There was a fair bit of ego involved in the upper echelon, and even some physical jostling for the top positions. Officers got in all sorts of squabbles with one another to justify why they felt they were more deserving of a higher position than the man next to them. Surprisingly, some seemed quite comfortable to settle at the bottom end of the pecking order without a fight. I placed myself right in the middle of the group, plumb in the center of the bell curve. When we had finished organizing ourselves, we were left in three groups of about ten, being a top dog group, the middle group in which I was situated, and the bottom group of 10. What was interesting about this exercise was that the groups could be could have almost been allocated based on physical stature alone, with the top group ex- exclusively the tall, muscular soldiers that the general public would in- envis- envision 
as what a special forces soldier would look like. The middle group was officers of average to below average height and build, su- and build such as myself. And the bottom group was made up of wiry, more insecure-looking officers with a couple sets of Coke-bottled glasses thrown among them for good measure. As the course progressed, one by one, the officers from the top group quit at a rate that far exceeded those from the bottom and middle group. When we reached the end of the grueling three-week course, only one or two of the top group remained, with the majority of successful officers coming from the bottom group in the rate your mates exercise. This was a phenomenon that I continued to observe over many subsequent selection courses that I supported as a doctor, and after many years of pondering, it now makes perfect sense to me. You see, the alpha male top dog soldiers who arrange themselves towards the pointy end of the pecking order are the types who have excelled throughout their lives, often on the sporting field, academically, and probably with the ladies. Things have come easily to them, and through a combination of genetics and natural talent, they have oftentimes been able to achieve at a high level with minimal to moderate levels of training or study. Society has held them in high esteem, and their ego has been allowed to develop accordingly. In the Army Special Forces selection scenario, they have usually come from the elite elements of their regular Army units, being either sniper or reconnaissance elements, and junior officers and soldiers alike look up to them. All of a sudden, they find themselves on a course where they are treated like shit around the clock, and everything they say or do is met with a barrage of humiliating abuse. Their competence is questioned at every opportunity, and after every one of their efforts and exertions, they are told they were not equal to the task. There is a method to the madness behind the psychological barrage of the special forces selection process, but to the ego-driven top dog soldier, this situation is completely foreign and so overwhelmingly overwhelmingly confronting that the majority of them cannot handle it and withdraw from the course at own request to return to the comfort of their previous units where their social status is already established. In stark contrast to the top dogs, were the soldiers who find themselves in the bottom ranks of the rate-your-mate type exercises. These are the ones who never excelled at anything in their youth, and for who any success in life has come entirely through sheer grit and dog determination. They have forced their bodies and minds to transcend their genetic or social boundaries to excel in the face of what the universe appeared to have mapped out for them. Many have dug themselves out of the rut of lower socioeconomic disadvantage or a troubled upbringing to not only reach a level playing field, with those around them, but to show the world that despite their genetics and past, that they can excel. Most will have been bullied to some degree at school, and you can guarantee they were never the cool kid. In my opinion, it is likely that the, that have been bullied places a chip on their shoulder and the fire in their belly to prove a point to those who bullied them by doing something exceptional with their lives. I suspect that either consciously or subconsciously, the effect of that school bullying is what drives many of these people to to be able to log the years of hard study, training, or both required to claw their way to the top. This is huge because, you know, when you, you know, everywhere in life or anywhere you go, in in school, somewhere, you know, there's always somebody um, who's at the top where it seems like things come easy to them and and that you're never going to be as good as them or you'll never be as strong as them or as fast as them or as smart as them. And people sell themselves short a lot. But a lot of those people who do sell themselves short or you know, they, they tend to persevere through that, they're the people who wind up being there at the end because, you know, like the guy who always gets the girl or the guy who's who's always, you know, on top and it's easy for them. 
they don't understand what it is uh, to persevere and they don't understand what it is, what it takes to, to, to get to that point. When you were in the middle of this, like at the beginning, did you feel that like, Oh God, man, look at these guys, these guys are going to kill it. And we're going to, Oh God, I don't, who knows what we're going to do. Like, like what was your mindset at the time? Yeah, for sure. So when I, I remember on the, the the first day of selection, when we got into our first PT session and just thinking, what have I done? This, you know, looking around and just getting completely psyched out, looking at these other six and a half foot tall super soldier looking blokes and just thinking I am in the wrong place. You know, I've, I've bitten off more than I can chew here. And it was a habit that I had when I was a triathlete as well. I always seemed to psych myself out and convince myself that I, I wasn't as well trained or as, as physically capable as the bloke next to me and and I, I've, I, I think I do think a degree of self-doubt is healthy I think to not have any self-doubt and to be overly confident and cocky is dangerous and you're setting yourself up for a fall however the the flip side of that is if you don't have any self-belief whatsoever it's it's hard to really stretch yourself and get towards goals but I, I think erring on the side of a bit of self-doubt is always good and the i think exactly what you're saying there is talks to the, the the heart of the resilience type debate and if you're cruising through school and you your junior life as a, as a young adult and and that period of time and you're physically you know you, you're a big person or you you're a strong person or you intellectually you're smarter than the next guy and you don't have to work at hard as hard you're not getting that opportunity to build the resilience that you can get if you're the bloke who's struggling, who's having to work really hard to keep up with grades, who's having to bust their ass and train two times a day instead of one to keep up on the sporting field. These kind of things are all the one getting bullied at school. And, you know, that's a terrible scenario. However, it does build resilience there's no two ways about it and i guess we spoke about david goggins earlier and and some of the horrendous things that went on in his early life that just absolutely sharpened that bloke and made him sort of rock hard to the point where he can do what he does now and that's an extreme example but i think there is some merit whilst you don't wish it on any kid but there is some merit in in having a degree of of uh, challenge and building a degree of resilience in your younger life and fast forwarding to the the passage you just read and that just that interesting observation on my own uh, selection course and then on other courses that I was involved with supporting them down the track and watching it all happen that, that was a, a consistent theme that you'd see these big super soldier looking guys and at the start you'd look at your group of 150 soldiers and think you know what that guy looks like he should be in this unit and, and it was almost always your eye was drawn to the big strong blokes and but over the time that I was involved with the section so the selection process uh, I would see that theme over and over again that it was the 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 smaller blokes the more wiry blokes the more insecure blokes that that hadn't had an exceptional military career to date they were the ones that seemed to do better they could take that that uh, and I, I mentioned the term barrage and I think it's a good one it's, a, it's an absolute psychological assault a uh, selection course and it's designed to be I mean it's physically very challenging but the the physical stuff in my opinion is just designed to wear a soldier down so that you can see their psychological makeup and and this is where the resilience comes in and you get these these wiry little tough guys that have got this never 
never quit attitude. Whereas some of the blokes who uh, have had things come easier in life, uh, you know, don't don't have that same resilience. And when it comes down to it, and they're cold, and they're tired, and they're hungry, and you know, everyone's sleep deprived, and you're getting yelled at, and they they just can't take it their ego is challenged and and they can't take it i mean there's always exceptions to this rule and you do get these uh, six and a half foot tall you know brick shit house super soldiers that have got that resilience and they are a formidable force and they're the blokes you, you want by your side uh, absolutely so i mean I, um, it's not it's not exclusive but in my experience they generally fell off the course at a faster rate than the the smaller warrior blokes which uh, which is it was surprising there are some of those guys out there that's like, yeah, you're you're uh, you're exactly as built. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right, and, and I mean, you can't compete with that. And I found that in my uh, triathlon experience. You know, I, I I found that I was doing the best I could, and ultimately, I was training with some of the the best guys in the world and doing the same stuff as them, and they were just head and shoulders above me. And it, it came down, I think, to a degree of genetics there. And these were guys, and also mindset. I, I look back now, and I was in my early 20s, I was mentally weak. I really was compared to the sort of levels of mental strength that I was able to achieve later in my life. But I think, you know, when you're stacking up against it, if you can get that, that perfect combination of genetics and physical uh, sort of strength and then that resilience and mindset, then, you know, that's, that's, your, that's your super soldier right there. You know, it's kind of funny, you know, when you're, when you're like 19, 20, you know, you're, I think like, you know, every kid has like that, yeah, I think we can do it kind of mentality. And then by the time you hit 24, I think that you should at least, you should have that mentality mentality where you're like, you know what, we're going to get it done and, and that's it. You know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just, let's just go and get it done. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I fear that we're losing that a little bit as a society. And I, I fear that the that resilience, and I, I guess it's generationally, you know, we're going to change, of course, and, and I'm different generationally to where my parents were at the same age and stage and that's how it is and you've got to move with it but I guess that just that growing up outdoors I mean I grew up pre-internet which my kids can't fathom they sort of look at me funny when I tell them we didn't (laughs) even have the internet when I was their age and and it's a different world now but I fear that we're losing that, uh, you know, that that childhood spent in the woods or down the creek and climbing trees and riding bikes and all that outdoor stuff, scuffing your knees, breaking your arm, all that stuff that uh, was a bit of a rite of passage. And this day and age, we're more inclined for our kids to to stay inside. They're on iPads and on screens, and that's all important stuff. That's the way of the future. They need to be able to access and work with those modalities. But by the same token, we're we're leading more and more comfortable lives as a generalisation, and and losing that uh, that breeding of the physical resilience that you can get from being outdoors. I agree with you uh, 110%, you know, and and I think that it comes down to, I think it comes down to failure, you know, because, you know, as you, as you grow older, you know, you, at least when you're young, you need to fail and there needs to be some kind of a learning experiment there because when when you fail, you you need to understand that that's not the end of the story. You know, that's not the end of, of, of what you're doing. You know, this is just the beginning. And take what you've learned from here and and move on. You know, yeah, maybe it wasn't meant to be at, at this time, but you gave a concerted effort, 
what's what's there to learn f- from here and move on you know and i think that the problem is is that uh kids don't uh, don't know how to accept specifically failure and then moving on from it yeah yeah i i, I definitely agree and i think failure is a crucial part of exactly everything you're saying but also if you're not failing then it's an indication that you're not testing the limits you're working so well within your comfort zone that you're not giving yourself the chance to not achieve an objective and that's not that's not not a great thing and i I guess once again coming back to kids these days and it's it it's a i'm i'm kind of torn on this issue there's a bit of a move towards things like school sport being less competitive and not keeping score so you don't have winners and losers so that you don't have kids, you know, walking away from it. And inherently I look at that and I think, geez, you know what, you need to learn to lose and you you need to keep score because, well, guess what, when you get out of school, uh, society keeps score and and it's not (laughs) kind of equal opportunities for, for everyone. But the... The, by that same token, with three young kids myself now, you don't want them to just constantly be demoralised by uh, not not winning and not having that opportunity to feel like they're excelling and progressing themselves. So it, it is a tough one, but I think you're quite right. I think failure is is important, and and throughout your life as well. I mean, it's I think as we kind of hit middle age which sadly i'm approaching now you you can get very comfortable and you can get stuck in your routine and stuck in your rut for one of a a better term and and i think it's it's important to keep just pushing those boundaries and setting goals and 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 to keep failing because that's what keeps you motivated works out works out where your limits are what you can and can't achieve you included one of my favorite quotes in your book and it's by calvin coolidge and it reads Nothing in this world can take the place of persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. Where, when did you uh, When did you read that for the first time? Oh, gee, uh, it would have been my early 20s, I imagine, when uh, I was sort of coming out of my triathlon days. I started to read a bit more widely, and I'd, I'd grown up. My mum and dad were, were pretty big on a, a lot of Rodyard Kipling's type stuff. Is If is a good example of that. And we had Max Ehrman's Desiderata is another fantastic motivational passage, and, and I've mentioned the um, Roosevelt's The Man in the Arena. So these were things that were were up around our house and we had access to growing up and of course you're reading them as a kid and we had to sit right on the back of our dunny door and so you know i was reading that from the earliest age and you can't make sense of it but but as i went along and revisited it it, it got more and more meaning and then you know once you've got a bit of life experience you can reflect on these things but gee that's uh that that quote that you just read by by coolidge is is just so true and so relevant and you look at i think a great example for most of us uh, sort of hitting your 30s and 40s is you look back at at people from school and maybe the people that were excellent at things at school on the sporting field academically and certainly in my experience not many if any of those have have gone on to to excel in adulthood and and you look at those who weren't particularly good at stuff but just kept chipping away at it for 5 10 15 20 years and these are the people that 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 are excellent and i mean it's which is great for 
all of us average 70 kilo dickheads out there because you you know if you just hang in there long enough uh the the field starts to trim out so there's right. a mission there so if, if you're still standing you're you know you, you you're still in the game and and it's incredible how if you are willing just to persist and knuckle down and, and dedicate yourself towards a goal long beyond the time when it's exciting and shiny and new and you've written your smart goal and you're really motivated you know long long after the 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 new year's resolution kind of you know you're hitting february march and it's no longer seems that much fun but i mean that's the grind and that's the persistence and that's what is rewarded ultimately you mentioned uh your smart goal and that means a specific measurable achievable realistic and time limited could you uh could you go over that uh, briefly yeah so i mean i guess with with any goal setting, and I mentioned it before, a lot of time people will think about, geez, I'd love to do this, I'd love to do that, and and then it'll pretty pretty quickly, uh, they might have have half a go at it, go for a couple of training runs, and then realise, no, nah, I can't can't run a marathon or something along those lines, or we might want to lose some weight, and and uh, but unless you're really specifically mapping out a plan and i mean the analogy that gets used i use it in the book and i think it's a really good one is is like a road trip in a car and so you know where your destination is and then you map out the towns you have to go through you map out where you're going to have to get fuel you put air in your tires you do this you do that you get food so that or you're going to stop here for lunch or stop there and so it's you know when you're doing a road trip we inherently do this and it's the same with a lot of other goals in our life uh, you know, we we will break them down and and work out how we're going to go about it. So break it down into small parts. But but when you're setting a a life goal, a lot of us think, geez, I'd love to lose some weight, or I'd love to run a marathon, or I'd love to get a university education. But that's where it ends, and you're not really giving yourself that roadmap from where you're at now to where you want to be. And so if you start with those two points and then start applying that smart goal process, so exactly as you said, specific. Is is the first part there? So rather than saying, "Hey, I'd, I'd love to lose some weight," you need to you need to quantify that, and that plays into the next one, which is measurable. So, you know, specifically, I want to lose ten kilos. Uh, there you go, and then that's measurable. You can work that out. That's a, an absolute value. Uh, achievable and realistic are, are other things that are important. You need to really look hard at what you're trying to achieve and and what your goal is, and 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 really sort of soul search and say, "Hey, is this?" Is this achievable for me, or is this is this realistic, or is this just pie in the sky stuff? And that's the difference between a an actual goal and then just a pipe dream. And so that does require a bit of a bit of soul searching there, and and that can play into modifying what your goal is if you you realise that isn't going to be achievable. If you want to run a marathon, and and then and this is another thing with the smart process, you need to review your goals as you go along. And so it may be that you want to run a marathon as you go along your knee starts to flare up and you you get a scan and you realize you've you've got some meniscal damage and you know your your doc says hey you're not going to be able to do any impact sport and so that's that's going to sort of shoot your your marathon goal in in the foot but then you might be able to kind of have a look at it, some cycling some low impact a swimming race something like that and so it's it's all about just looking at your goals making sure they're achievable and realistic and then time limited is is the other one so you got to put an end point on that and a sporting event's a good one because that's often you know i want to run the boston marathon or or uh, whatever your goal might be and you know when that is uh, but if it's something that's a bit less 
tangible than that if it's a weight loss goal. And I know, I know I'm sort of drawing on those two examples, but they're not bad ones. So you might set yourself a, a six-month time frame to lose your 10 kilos and then you – or say six months to lose your 10 kilos. Yeah, you can break that down and work out how much you need to lose roughly each month, each week, and that just makes it these little bite-sized pieces that you can chip away at rather than that uh, overarching goal, which might seem a bit overwhelming. So break it down into small, manageable bite-sized uh, goals and – start hitting those and then that starts to give you a bit of motivation shows that you can achieve it and uh, starts to move towards that bigger goal and if you just persist then uh, you'll get there pretty much the uh, recipes for success right there (laughs) yeah rack on i'm a massive fan of contemporary movement of random acts of kindness I believe there's a certain satisfaction that you get from performing a selfless act for someone else without any expectation of something in return that's hard, if not impossible, to get from other means. There are a couple of great mantras that come in mind when I think of Rack, the first of which comes from John Bunyan and reads, You have not lived today until you have done something for someone who can never repay you. The second great passage that springs to mind when I think about the topic of Rack is a poem, Have You Earned Your Tomorrow, by Edgar Guest, which opens with the line, Is anybody happier because you passed his way? And closes with, As you close your eyes in slumber, do you think that God would say, You have earned one more tomorrow by the work you did today? By work in this poem, Guest is referring to selfless efforts to help those around us, rather than self-serving acts with expectation of reward or favor. With hindsight, my dad who was a very kind and generous man, exposed me to Rack from the earliest age. While we were never flush with cash growing up, we certainly had plenty to get by, and Dad never hesitated to share when he could. I vividly recall multiple occasions when Dad would pick up hitchhikers on long highway trips, and when he dropped them off, would often give them the, all the cash he had in his, in his wallet at the time, and simply because he knew that they needed it more than he did. Sometimes the hitchhikers would try and make a plan to repay the, repay the money or attempt to get Dad's details, which Dad would always decline, suggesting that they could potentially repay the favor to someone else in need in the future. Now, I think that that's absolutely huge because I believe in the same thing, you know, is, you know to do something to help somebody honestly and for them to repay you by, you know, passing it on down the road, you know, and and, you know, that's huge because... It starts off not like a, not like a, um, you know, he helped me because I've fallen down type of thing. I mean, it, it it could be, but which which seems insignificant to us. But that person could be having like the worst day ever, you know. And you helping pick that person up, you know, could be the world of difference where, you know, they don't feel the burden as much anymore. That they know that there's hope out there. Do you do you um. Do you have any uh, any stories to share of you uh, maybe uh, giving somebody a helping hand? Oh, look, I mean, the the yeah, look, couldn't agree more. I, I, I think this, as I've gone on in life and sort of become more, more mature and had kids myself and, and had my dad pass away, I've, I've thought more and more of this. And, I mean, it's part of – I think it's what makes us human and I think it's a big uh, factor in – feeling fulfilled and you look at some of the the social psychologists maslow and and a couple of others uh, along those similar lines that talk about 
self-fulfillment and self-actualization. And and most of those will mention a degree of uh, contributing to society as being a, a fundamental part of reaching your fullest potential. And it, it's interesting when you start to look at it, and I think as young people, most of us are, are fairly self-centered and, and are only interested in, you know, something that, that has a benefit. You won't you won't go out of your way to do an effort for someone else that, that you're not going to see a reward for. And I think most kids are plumbed that way. Geez, I know that mine are, uh, and it kills me. <laughs> but, um, but, and I think maybe even as you, you get into your late teens, early 20s, for the most part, people are relatively self-centered and looking for some form of reward for any effort but then i i do think that most of us as we hit our 30s 40s and particularly as you have your own kids and inherently it's all about uh, delivering something to someone else but they're your kids you know so that's uh, that's expected that's part of being a parent it's it's how it is the but uh, i've found over the years and in terms of specifics i mean there's there's a lot that i can think of uh, when i've had Opportunities, and I see it as a real privilege to help people out. And in the the medical field, you get that opportunity often, which is a, a nice way to be. You know, people are coming to see you, particularly in the emergency department environment, when they're having a bad day. You know, things are going horribly wrong. They're they're injured. They're sick. They're frightened, or they might be a parent that's got a kid that's sick. You know, severe asthma or something, struggling to breathe, and and they can't help them. And as a parent, that's a, that's a horrendous feeling. And so, to be able to be that doctor there who can can just help someone out is a, a real privilege. And and I think something that shouldn't be taken lightly. I guess that's that's does not really a random act of kindness in that that's kind of your job. But I think moving forward uh, from that just taking those opportunities becoming aware and seeing those opportunities to be able to just help someone out uh, is huge and, and, and part of being human and I think I use the example a couple of times in the book of just giving cash to homeless people or strangers or these kind of things and and there's another example where our family has a a tradition of, of buying a bike for a, a thing called the wishing tree. So it's a, around Christmas time. It's, it's you can buy presents and put them under a tree at a local department store, and they get given to a you know boy or girl. You can pick what what gender and what age, and and that's it. And then you leave the the gift there, and that stems from just my absolute love of riding bikes and my my vivid memory of getting my first bike as an eight-year-old which is actually kind of late to have a bike to be honest but uh, <laughs> at the time it was what it was and and I, I got this bike and just absolutely loved it and so the the thought there is that hopefully one of these uh, you know these these bikes can find their way to a, another eight-year-old kid who otherwise wouldn't have had that opportunity and I think that just that pleasure of giving and and knowing that you'll never get anything in return, knowing that you, you're never even going to find out where that gift ends up or, or, or uh, anything along those lines, but just knowing that you've done something because you could to try and help someone else out who hasn't got it as good as you do. And, and I, I think that ties in as well to gratitude and just being very consciously uh appreciative of of what we have and and i've been i guess lucky enough to have my eyes opened uh, by my experiences in war zones to just how bad things can be 
and then you come back to your comfortable first world existence and you start to realize geez i've got it really good and then you you think well how how can i do my small part to help someone else out who may not be uh you know going as well in life as as i'm lucky enough to be you know the bikes are the bikes are such a great gift because you know as a kid when you first learn how to ride a bike you know, I mean, you really feel like uh maybe like freedom in a way you know <laughs> Oh, freedom is the exact correct term for it. And, and I, I still remember vividly. So, you know, that is uh, well, 34 years ago now. And I can remember that experience vividly first learning to ride that bike right. and that feeling of, of speed and, and absolute freedom as I was sort of ripping up and down a little street <laughs> as a kid. And yeah, it's it's that's etched into my brain. And, and bikes were a huge part of my life when I got into the triathlon thing, spent, you know, countless hours uh, thrashing out thousands of kilometers on on push bikes, so it was, a, it was a big part of my life. And but that that first experience learning to ride a bike and that first getting the feel of the balance of the bike is something that's, that's etched into my memory. And yeah, to think that I might be able to play a small part in facilitating that for another kid really brings me a lot of pleasure. This is the last. Um, this is the last part that I'm going to read of your book because, I, I, like I said, I want to leave a lot of it for the. For everyone else to read because it's really a great read. This is called Don't Leave Any Rounds in the Magazine. The event occurred on a section of the course involving a five-day individual navigation exercise, compromising long-distance hikes in a national park between checkpoints at the tops of mountains while car- carrying a very heavy pack. The real challenge of the exercise was a psychological one that we were provided no indication as to how much distance we needed to cover or how many checkpoints we needed to reach to pass the activity. We were left completely to our own devices and needed to pace ourselves to cover as much or as little ground as we felt reasonable, all the while keeping in mind the fact that there was a further five days of this selection course to go afterwards. We were under strict instructions not to interact with the other candidates during the activity and for the most part the individual routes between checkpoints that we had all out we had all allocated meant that full days could pass without seeing another candidate anyway. I had crossed paths with a few others the first couple of days, and we played, We had played by the rules and given one another nothing more than a nod of acknowledgement before proceeding on our separate ways. On the morning of the final day of the activity, I bumped into another candidate in a deep creek line I was moving along and, fig- and figuring that the chance of getting caught was slim. took the chance to have a quick chat. The topic of that discussion centered on how much distance we had both covered and how many checkpoints we had hit. During the conversation, the other candidate told me with a decent degree of conviction that a minimum of five checkpoints were required to pass the activity. And without really questioning the authenticity of his information, I took it as gospel. We wrapped up our conversation and parted ways, leaving me to ponder my situation. I had hit four checkpoints by that point, and my fifth was at the very top of a mountain some 20 kilometers away. We were under instruction not to move after dark, which left me with about seven hours to get to get to it. By that stage, we were a couple of weeks into the selection course and my body was starting to show some wear and tear. I had strained one of my quadricep muscles quite badly, and it was giving me hell with every step. I had started to lose a considerable amount of weight from the intense physical exertion of the course and the limited food provided. My physical deterioration was starting to take, to- take a toll on my psychological state, and for the first time on the course, I was having moments of mental weakness and doubt. I trudged along throughout the rest of the final day of the activity and was approaching the base of the mountain that my fifth checkpoint sat atop 
as the sun started to get low on the horizon. By that time, I had resigned myself to the fact that I wouldn't make it to the checkpoint before dark, and I had decided to set up camp at the base of the mountain for the night and ready when my location for the scheduled pickup the following morning. In the final few hundred meters of stomping towards the base of the mountain, another candidate came charging up from behind without me noticing and drew level with me. Scaring the life out of me as he did so, it turned out that his next checkpoint was at the same was the same one as mine. But unlike me, his attitude was positive, and despite acknowledging that he was going to make the checkpoint before dark, he was going for it anyway. He urged me to do the climb with him, but I was mentally defeated at the time, and when he hit and when we hit the step the start of the track leading up the mountain, I wished him the best of luck and then found a place to camp for the night and drop my pack. And although I made my decision to quit. Something inside of me didn't allow me to unpack my kit to set up camp. As I sat there dejected, I turned my gaze to the other candidate in the distance, making his way up the climb to the checkpoint. As the sun began to set, I ran all the years of training that had led up to that point through my mind, and as I did so, it occurred to me that they had all led to that moment, and I was in the very process of giving up on my dream. I had the sickening realization that everything that I had worked so hard for and all the sacrifices I had made made my may have been all for nothing if I didn't at least give that final climb a crack. My fifth checkpoint was less than a kilometer away. I'll buy it all uphill. I wouldn't get there before dark, but I'd rather take a beasting from an angry SAS soldier at the checkpoint for moving after dark than live the rest of my days knowing that I'd let myself down by quitting on my dream. I slung my pack my my pack back onto my aching shoulders and shoulders and with my lungs and legs burning, I made the best pace I was capable of up the mountain track as the light faded. As it got darker and darker, I got more and more frantic, stumbling on the rocky track underfoot as I raced toward the summit. The close foliage surrounding the track grabbing my, sho- my shoulders and pack as I plowed, plowed on. By the time the track leveled out, I neared the checkpoint. I was in a trance-like state fueled by the endorphins that my body was spewing out in response to the extreme exertion of the climb and the pain from my strained quadricep muscle. I paused for an instant to catch my breath and focus my eyes through the darkness to see the faint glow of the light at the checkpoint. With absolutely nothing left to lose, I made my way to the checkpoint, and bracing for the worst, I announced myself to the directorial staff there. Without any emotion whatsoever, he proceeded to radio in to the higher command that I had reached the checkpoint, and then he promptly dismissed me, instructing me to set up camp nearby and to make my way back down to the base of the mount- of the mountain in the morning for pickup. Did you at that point think to yourself, you know what, I'm not even going to set up camp. I'm just going to crash right here. <laughs> yeah, I didn't make it. Far. Actually, that, that uh, DS on the, the top of the mountain, he was one of those six-and-a-half-foot super soldiers that was <laughs> before, and he's, he's a, he turned out, uh, in the end, to become Australia's most highly decorated soldier, uh, so he's he, wow. was, he was a real man mountain and a, a real sort of s- scary dude to look at, but lovely bloke once you got to know him. But certainly <laughs> intimidating for a candidate on the um, on the selection course. But yeah, he actually invited me to camp next to him up on the top of the mountain. He said, "Oh, you know, it's dark. Throw up your stuff here." I said, "Oh, thanks, but no thanks, sir. I'll uh, I'll make my way a bit <laughs> a bit of the way. I didn't want to be anywhere near him." To be yeah. Honest. I was, terrified of him but but um yeah look i mean that that was a that was a real turning point on that course for me and I'd, i i mentioned earlier that my resolve was 
was really strong towards getting on that course and and then that was so it was a three-week course and that was uh, within five days so it was about day 16 17 somewhere along there and and it was the the first time that my mind threatened to quit on me i was absolutely buggered I, I was getting to the base of that climb i knew that i wasn't going to get there after dark and it was it was my mind sort of and my, my body just screaming at me to screaming at my mind to quit and and i'd made that decision and it's on reflection i'm not sure how it would have played out if that other candidate hadn't have turned up and almost you know guilted me into doing it in a way but he was just so positive and he must have been as knackered as i was at that point and and as is broken everyone was injured and tired and had lost weight it was just a a fact of life and and he was just the absolute opposite of of, uh, my mental state at the time he's like i'm gone for this and and he did and and so i sat there and watched him for a little bit and then as you read I, i had that horrid realization you know what i'm i'm sitting here my checkpoint's up there. If I don't do this, and this is why I get kicked off the course, then I'm going to forever regret this. And so I made that decision, and I'm really glad I did to just crack on, give it a go. Worst case scenario, I get to the top and the, the DS yells at me or says doesn't count because it's after dark. But that's a better outcome than spending the rest of my days wishing I had of. And to, to this day, I've got no idea whether – getting that additional checkpoint had any bearing or not or whether i could have just camped at the bottom and i'd done enough to pass the activity i'm I'm not sure but it was a a turning point on that course in that i'd pushed myself to a level beyond 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 the point that i'd ever pushed myself before physically or psychologically in my entire life that was the 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 sort of hardest i'd ever had to work physically and more importantly psychologically and it just in terms of being on the course that was a, a point at which i said i'm i'm not breaking you know mentally I, w- I will not be broken on this course i'm going to keep pushing they can either remove me or my body will break and i won't be able to physically go on and they, they will be acceptable outcomes uh, but for me to quit on an activity or heaven forbid remove myself from the course was completely unacceptable and so it was a, a bit of a, a pivotal point. And it's it's one of those things in life. And I, there's a, a great book called The Dip uh, by a, a marketer called Seth Godin. And he talks about just in general with regards to when you, you set a goal. And I, I mentioned it earlier and everything's new and shiny. Your goal's brand new and you're motivated for the first days, weeks towards your goal. And, and then you hit this dip, this sort of period where you, you're thrashing it out and and it, the shine comes off it and it's just hard work. It's it's early mornings, late nights. If it's a physical goal, it's physically taxing. You're sore, you're worn out. You need to stretch and recover and, and train and all that sort of stuff. Eat well if you're trying to a physical goal or a weight loss goal. And and it's in that period of the dip where you that's where the persistence comes in. And then the, the temptation will be to quit at some point because you're not seeing the immediate results. You you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. You're making minuscule gains towards it. It might be two steps forward, one step back. And this is where a lot of people will quit on their goals. But you never know when you're just, you know, a, a, a tiny bit off achieving that ultimate goal. So there's there's times where you, you just got to hang in there a little bit longer. And I guess that's where the persistence, the mindset 
uh, comes into play. And with this particular instance, that was the, I just got to crack on, do my very best. And, and fortunately, that other bloke gave me the motivation to, to do just that. And sadly, he reached the end of the course. So I had the opportunity to bail him up at the end of the course and say, geez, thanks for giving me that motivation. And I let him know that he'd inspired me to do that climb and then finish the course. Uh, but And whilst he got to the end, he wasn't picked up for service with the unit. So I lost track of him after that. But um, yeah, it was a, a real pivotal moment on that course for me and the one where I decided that, that I was going to grit my teeth and, and hang in there. But it's, it's the same in in life when you're working towards any ambitious goal sometimes you, you're never quite sure when success might be just around the corner and you just got to hang in there uh, until you either hit that success or until it is physically impossible you know if you've got an entrepreneurial startup and you run out of cash then then that's it but i mean if you give up on your on your startup when you've still got 10 grand in the bank because you think geez I, I could really use with that 10 grand then you might just be giving up the second before an investor turns up and, and bails you out or, or you, you hit it big if you're trying to develop something. So that's where that whole don't leave any rounds in the magazine comes from. At what point did you decide, you know, I think I'm going to write a book? I'd actually – so I'd – I'd written a, a manuscript before that's never been published, and it, it was just surrounding my events, uh, the events of my times, particularly some of the traumatic events of my times in Afghanistan where we had soldiers killed and and um, made some mind that I, I couldn't save on the ground out there. And, and that had stemmed from – I'd actually come back from one rotation where we lost uh, three blokes in pretty quick succession. And in my, my uh, post-deployment psych debrief, I was just running through – the uh the scenario and then the psych said hey look, you know might be a good idea to write down as much detail as you can about these events just to get it straight in your head to kind of get it down on paper to process the events and and so it was as a bit of a cathartic uh psych type exercise that i, I started writing properly and and that ended up being a really good activity for me and that that's what started is just trying to get some thoughts together turned into a, a 150 odd thousand uh word book that i that i wrote covering my my time leading up to the military and then on deployment and and nothing's ever come of that it's it's got too much sort of sensitive content to be uh releasable but it, it got me interested in the writing side of things and then I became interested in in blogging and and social media and when I was with special operations of course we couldn't have a social media presence at all so I was uh, very late to the the social media game and and didn't have a Facebook or Instagram account until I was 37 or 38 or something like that so it's <laughs> it sort of it was pretty foreign to me but but I, be, I became very interested in the military towards the end of my career in instructing and uh, in a medical capacity I, I do a lot of instructing doing a, a lots of talks and and presentations and these kind of things lessons learned and so I I, I had a real interest in that area and then that uh, joy of writing kind of occurred to me when I, I wrote that manuscript as that cathartic exercise. And then when I started engaging in social media post my military career, it was very much about how I could try and take some of my experiences and lessons learned uh, oftentimes the hard way and then you know, try and get them out there with the, the goal of maybe trying to help someone else out. And, and a degree of that came from 
when I was training up towards special forces selection, wanted to be a doctor in that environment, I'd gone looking for mentors and, and I found a couple of really exceptional ones who who gave me the time of day and, and gave me motivation and replied to my emails. And and so the the thought occurred to me that, that I might be in the privileged position where I can offer that to, to someone else. And so I started trying to put a few lessons learned out on social media, particularly Instagram, and uh, that that seemed to be well received, and and so the there was themes that were were coming through in my social media posts that seemed to resonate more than others, and and basically the the idea of average seventy kilo dickhead was just elaborating on some of those themes, sort of grabbing them and 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 stretching them out a bit more than you can on on an Instagram post, and and that was the the um, motivation behind putting that out. Do you have uh, another book in the works? Yeah, look, I've, I've always always got another book in the works. <laughs> I'm, sort of, I'm one of these these people that's always got about ten harebrained uh, bloody things on the go at any given time, and three startup companies, and, and yeah. So, but yeah, look, I, I've I've been um, knocking together a, a few bits and pieces. I'm, I've become very interested in the last six to twelve months in. Uh, cold water immersion in ketogenic diets in mindfulness and meditation uh, in the resilience in general and I, I really think there's a lot there and coming back I mean to the well excelling in any field in life but particularly special forces I, I look at how most people including myself approach the special forces selection course and, and preparation for it and I think most people are very aware of the physical requirements and I think that's where their emphasis is but I think they're probably leaving a lot on the table and I know I did with regards to psychological preparation and also physiological preparation and and for any uh, listener who's come across Wim Hof who's the the Iceman doing all his his cold water immersion stuff he's a Dutch bloke and if you haven't heard of him and you're interested have a look but there's there's some pretty good evidence coming out now about uh, cold water immersion ice baths and some of the physiological adaptation that you can get out of that I think the gut biome is another area that's massively misunderstood and another opportunity for people to really tap into another echelon of human performance and and the mindfulness the meditation stuff all this stuff that if if someone had told me i'd be interested in 10 years ago i would have probably laughed at them that ketogenic diet and becoming fat adapted as opposed to running on carbohydrate and the the short-term performance benefits of that but also the longer term uh, health benefits of, of putting less sugars into your system. So I think there's a whole bunch of very interesting uh, facets of our physiology that people aren't tapping into and I think is is something that's that's really warrants further investigation. And when you look at particularly a special forces selection process where you've got already very, very fit, motivated uh, young blokes as a general rule, obviously women are, are now coming into the special forces selection process as well, and and uh, which is great to see. But but uh, when you look at at the the difference that two, three, five percent in performance, be it physical or psychological, can make, and I, I really think that we can unlock a bit more uh, of our potential and not focus as much just purely on the physical, but start moving into these other modalities to improve human performance. 
and that could have a huge effect on a on a selection course or on you know life in general, whatever you're striving towards. I did a podcast not too long ago with uh, Nikki Pepper, and we, we it was about the basics of fitness, and uh, she brought up Wim Hof, and I told mm-hmm. her, I'll tell you too. I read somewhere that that guy climbed. Um, Mount Everest and like a pair of shorts, nothing else. <laughs> yeah, that's his thing. So I mean, he's he's the the Wim Hof method is a and, and yeah, I won't sort of go into any great detail, but it's it's some breathing techniques. It's a lot of cold exposure in in different ways, and it's it's all about uh, basically just tapping into these uh, untapped reserves of human performance. And and he does some phenomenal stuff with. Uh, under ice swimming he's got a couple of world records there and and also mountain climbing and it's quite fascinating with his breathing techniques which involve uh, hyperventilation so breathing faster than you feel the need to and then he's got these breath holding exercises as well and there's there's some some decent science behind it even though there seems to be a lot of uh, voodoo associated with what he's doing <laughs> as well to be honest but but one of his big things and something that he's repeatedly proven not just by himself but with groups of diverse groups of individuals is going up to high altitude in phenomenally quick times without uh, periods of acclimatization at different altitudes and using his breathing techniques to be able to overcome all that acute mountain sickness and so there's some incredible case studies he he often takes groups to uh, Kilimanjaro in Africa and they'll summit it in 30 hours whereas most people will take six seven eight days to get up to the top and give themselves plenty of time to acclimatize at the different altitudes but uh, more phenomenally exactly as you said they'll do it sort of half naked they'll have a set of climbing boots and shorts on and and apparently old uh, Wim Hof likes to just climb in a, a set of set of dick togs just a speedo and, not much else. and, and so it's it's phenomenal what he can do and and he is like he's the extreme of that and uh, i think yeah there's been a couple of times where he's come very close to dying in trying to achieve things but i think really there's, there's yeah i think he, he he near drowned in one of his under ice uh, swimming uh, record attempts pretty early in his fame he uh, his his corneas froze over and he couldn't see and and luckily he had some some rescue divers in the water and one of them hauled him out but so oh my you know God. He, he's an extreme example but I think there's there's room for most of us within the the kind of limits of what's very safe to tap into some of what the Wim Hof's doing and and uh, just get a bit of extra human performance and I, I think if nothing else if you don't believe any of the hype surrounding the physiological adaptation of cold water immersion and there, there's some decent evidence there there's some fairly solid scientific data now however I think the one of the big parts of it and, and something that I enjoy about ice baths is the the actual mental discipline of forcing yourself into a, a bath full of ice because it's something you desperately don't want to do or hopping into a cold shower in the middle of winter. And it's it's as good a mental discipline as it is a, a physiological opportunity to adapt, in my opinion. Yeah, I'm going to have to give that a shot because uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I heard that it's really, really good for you. Uh, what are the physiological effects of, uh, like medically, of, of taking um, like a cold shower? There's, 
a couple of things. So, I mean, the when you get exposed to extreme uh, cold, which depending on what your climate is, a cold shower may or may not be. But ultimately, the first of all, it, it gives your body a, a little bit of a shock, and so the you, you get a bit of a dump of your stress hormones. So, anything that pushes your body out of its normal parameters, out of its homeostasis, which are the boundaries that your body likes to operate within, and it's a whole bunch of different variables, but temperature is one of them. If you start pushing your body outside of those uh, boundaries, those set parameters that it wants to be within, you, your body starts to react to that. And so when it's when it's cold, for instance, say you hop in a, a, an ice bath that's down around you know, 10 degrees Celsius, I uh, don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but, but cold anyway, cold enough so that you hop in and you, it takes your breath away, then your body on a, a physiological level, it doesn't know that you're just in a bath and you can hop out at any time. So you, your cells don't understand that. And they know that if they stay in that cold water for any protracted period, that you will die because that is well outside your your boundaries. People falling into cold water, you know, they, they have hypothermia and it's a pretty uh, quick death if you if it's freezing cold water and you can't get out in time or get saved. And so on a, on a very basic level, your body starts to dump out a massive stress response and dumps all the stress hormones that your body might need to mount a fight or flight response to be able to get yourself out of that environment and it does that thinking hey if we don't get out of this environment we're going to be dead so let's give everything we've got to to be able to get us out of here so you, you dump a whole stack of, of chemicals like adrenaline so epinephrine your, your stress neurotransmitters dopamine which is a, a feel-good neurotransmitter in your brain gets dumped you on a a physiological level you start to shut down all your blood flow to your periphery so you get a, a vasoconstriction a massive uh, constriction of the blood vessels in all your peripheries your hands your feet everything your, your body starts to shunt blood to your vital organs to try and keep your core warm so it shunts it all and that gives you your blood vessels a really good workout there you, your lymphatic system gets a good squeeze and so that's a system that sort of parallels your veins and drains additional fluid that's that's leaked out of your blood vessels uh, which is a very normal process but it drains additional fluid in the tissues back to your uh, dumps it back into your circulatory system and so these are the things that are going on when you get in the cold there and then it, it'll eventually so an ice bath will push you out of that that homeostatic your body your body's core temperature will start to drop and it's it's one of these things it's it's a fine balance. You don't want to stick around too long in it. You can uh, you can run into troubles in hypothermia. But but then when you hop out, everything vasodilates again. So it's just like an intense workout for your body's vasculature. It's an intense dump of all these stress hormones. That the the studies suggest that if you do that periodically, uh, if you do that long term, if you're stressing your system long term and having too much of the stress hormones, the cortisol and what have you, eventually you, your body will break down. But if you pulse it periodically then you can you can actually get some benefits to that and there's some decent studies that suggest that it, it benefits your immune system longer term at just but short sharp uh, sort of stress responses in a very controlled fashion over long periods of time uh, show these these benefits what is the length of time that you would recommend being in an ice bath or say a cold shower yeah it's a decent question i mean minutes is the the answer i 
I tend to, I started off just having short blasts of cold water at the end of a, a normal shower and so trying to stay under it for a minute, three minutes uh, was the way I started and then I just moved into having just pure cold showers morning and night and admittedly I'm in an Australian climate where it's not particularly cold, you know, we don't get any any snow, it never gets down below zero where I live so that's that's to put perspective on it, the cold water isn't that cold. Uh, where I'm at and so I've moved into having ice baths where I don't actually measure the temperature of them I just run a cold bath and dump 15 kilos of ice in it and then hop in but the a, a decent guide is when your body starts to shiver so I, I tend to stay in between about 10 and 15 minutes, but certainly yeah, it depends how cold you've got it. If you've got a, a proper ice bath with circulating water, that that really chills you down faster. And, and then you should be staying in, you know, somewhere in the order of one to three minutes. Uh, but the once your body starts to shiver, that's a good indicator that your core temperature is starting to drop and your body's shivering to try and warm itself back up. And so you don't want to push it too much past that unless you sort of ride into it and experienced. And, and certainly, you know, you don't want to be pushing this going and, and swimming in frozen lakes by yourself and all that sort of stuff. You've got to keep it keep it safe because sadly people have died and, and trying to practice Wim Hof's techniques. So it's, it is about keeping it safe and being sensible and uh, just getting started with a bit of cold cold water in the shower and then working up to a bit of ice in your bath. But when you're starting to shiver and your toes are starting to go a bit numb, that's probably a, a decent point to think about getting out until you get right into it. Yeah, because I don't want to be too hardcore, you know, and I'm like <laughs> sitting there and be like, come on, if Wim Hof can do this for like, you know, three days, I can do this for, you know, 20 minutes. Do you know what I mean? Oh, I don't think any of us should aspire to try and <laughs> that man's a uh, an absolute uh, freak of nature. But yeah, he certainly he sets the bar high. But I think there's something in that for all of us. I, I really do. I think it's a great uh, discipline and something that people should try. Well, Dan, it's been a uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast, man. And uh, you know, I really appreciate your time, and I I really appreciate you know, what you've done for freedom and, and fighting for it and, and your sacrifices, you know, that, that you've done for, for your country, you know, you've done it for freedom. And, and I, I really, I uh, really believe in that. And I really, I would like to thank you for your service and uh, you coming on the show. Yeah, no, cheers for that, Priya. I appreciate those kind words, mate. And I guess, uh, like most people who've served, for, for me, it was a real privilege. It was a, a great honor, a really fantastic period of my time and, and uh, a period of my life. And, and um, yeah, lots of lots of fairly rich memories, and it's it's nice to be able to come on shows like yours and and share a few of them. So thank you for having me. Where can people find you on on social media? Instagram is where I'm most active. So Dan Pronk uh, on Instagram. Uh, I've also got a, a profile on LinkedIn where I, I put up a few articles here and there. And so Instagram and LinkedIn is the best spots to find me. Awesome, man. Well, uh, once again, thank you for having me on the show. And uh, that's all that we've got for everybody tonight. This is Dan and Mike out. Mike out.